So Mark and Andrew were two brothers who grew up with dreams of getting to work for their father. Um, their dad was their hero, like many young boys, and they grew up hearing stories about how their dad started out as a lifeguard, and then he installed sprinklers, but he saved and scrounged every penny that he had through hard work and eventually was able to start his own company. And he started his own investment company, and it ended up becoming very successful and turning into one of the premier and top investment places on Wall Street. And so they both went, where they worked hard and went to good schools and got degrees in finance with dreams that one day they'd get to work alongside their dad. And so the family business, it just grew even more once they came to join him, and they invested millions and billions in charities and nonprofit organizations. But then 2008 came, and like many companies, especially in the financial sector, they were hit especially hard as people started to pull their money out and the banks crash and you know the rest. And so they were surprised and caught off guard when their dad, who had always seemed so brilliant and had always seemed to turn things around, came to them and started telling them that they should give themselves millions of dollars in bonuses. And so they were trying to talk, Dad, this doesn't make any sense. Like, we've been fine. We can get through this. Let's just keep the money, and then our company will, will endure. And their dad just kept getting more and more angry. And eventually, their dad broke down because they just didn't understand. And then finally, their father broke the, told them some news that shocked them. See, their company that was actually so successful and had all of these billions of dollars was actually just a big fraud. See, their father's name was Bernard, more well-known as Bernie Madoff. And the company that they had built was the world's largest Ponzi scheme known to man. He had stole, had invested, and how Ponzi schemes work is you're basically just scheming and taking people's money and giving it to other people and just getting the pot and the pyramid higher and higher. And so their, their father and their company that they had invested all their money in and they'd got their friends and their family to invest in was all built on false promises and lies. Over $65 billion was stolen from over 5,000 people, including veterans, family friends, charities, and even some Holocaust survivors. It can be hard to know who to trust, isn't it? Even for them, they thought they could trust their father, and then their whole world came crashing down over some lies. And even us, we think, you know, well, maybe I'm really good at knowing who to trust and discernment, and I can figure out whose promises I can or can't believe. But science tells us that we're actually pretty bad at this. Um, we instinctively trust people that look more like us. So and that doesn't just mean skin color, that means the closer your face resembles my face, the better I'm going to feel about trusting you with things. And another study I found fascinating, a car dealership found that if they just added the phrase, trust us, to the end of their advertisements, the amount of people that trusted them went up by 40%. Even though we all know you probably shouldn't trust car dealerships or car salesmen. I think it's fair to say to the know that we're not very good at deciding who we should and shouldn't trust, are we? But what we're going to look at this morning is we are going to see and look at the fact that God is someone that we can trust. And what we're going to see in these many chapters as we look at is that we are just going to, going to laser focus on this fact that God is trustworthy and He keeps His promises. Now, some of you may have gotten scared um, because I, I tend to read whole chapters, and we've even read two chapters together, so maybe you came and thought we're going to read 12 chapters this morning and... Well, how long is that sermon going to be? Um, don't worry, we're only actually going to read a handful of verses. Um, so we're going to be continuing to Joshua. We're going to be at the end of chapter 21. 
and we're just going to laser focus in on 43 through 45, because these three verses are actually a, a way and a lens to understand all of the rest of these chapters. We're going to go back, I'm going to summarize them, I'm going to show you um, how, they reveal, how they reveal this. Um, and the things that we're going to look at is we are going to look at the, who, why God is trustworthy, and then we're going to look at what He promises us, and then finally we'll see, well, what do we do about these promises? Um, so if you're, you've turned with me, you can go ahead um, and stand if you're able, and we're just going to read Joshua 21, 43 through 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that He swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as He had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all of the good promises that God had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that not one word of Your promises fails. God, I ask that you would be here this morning. I ask that you would speak to us. I ask that you would open our hearts, open our ears, allow us to hear from you. Lord, would you encourage us and would you help us to place our hope in you and in your promises? I pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can have a seat. So first thing is we're going to look at, you know, why, why is God trustworthy? And well, point number one is that not one word of God's promises will ever fail. Not one word of God's promises will ever fail. And you can tell I'm really brilliant for how I came up with that point, because that's basically just verse 45. Not one word of all of the good promise that the Lord made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. That's why I entitled this sermon, Not One Word, because I love that phrase. There is not a single syllable, not a single word that came from the mouth of God that was not trustworthy. All of us have had people's words fail us, haven't we? I'm sure I won't have you raise your hand because it'll be all of us. If someone who promised you something and then it didn't come true, right? Or the promised promotions that you got passed over for, promise you don't have to worry about the layoffs, but then it comes. A promise that a loved one is going to give you a call or they're going to come to visit as soon as they have time and then they never show up. You just finished an election cycle with politicians on every side at every up and down the ballot, making all sorts of promises that we all kind of know they're not really going to keep. And people's promises are always failing us, aren't they? I make promises to Calvin a lot. I made a promise to him yesterday. Um, whenever we're eating, he always wants food. He always wants your food. And so as soon as he sees me sit down at the table with my food, he just starts saying, bite, bite, bite. Even Calvin, I have the same food that you have, son. So what I've done, I've learned. I'm, I'm smart. Right? So I always promise him that he will have the last bite. So in my head, at least, I'll give him the very last bite, So because if I give him one bite, he's just going to keep asking. So I give him the last one, so then it's all done. I don't have to hear bite anymore. Right? But so yesterday, I promised him the last bite, and I said, he was done eating, so he was walking around. I said, Calvin, I looked him in the eyes, I will not forget, you will have the last bite. Well, he walked away, and my pasta was really delicious, um, so I did forget. And I broke my promise, and when he came back, he was very disappointed that Dad had lied to him. Right? So, you know, it can be minor, right? There can be promises that we break, but there can be much bigger promises that we break as well. But there's someone who has never broken a single promise, and that is our God. 
He doesn't forget because he gets distracted. He doesn't forget because he can't see all the way down and see how things are going to turn out and then comes and says, well, I'm sorry, son. You know, I just, I, I didn't know this would turn out this way, so now I have to break my word to you. No, not one word of God's promises fails. Every single promise he makes to his people throughout all time comes true. So much of our world is unsure. We live in uncertain times today, and we feel that, but really all times are uncertain. There's plenty of uncertainty always, but one thing we can always be certain of is that our God keeps His promises. He keeps every single one. You can flip through this whole book, read through it as long as you want, take all the time, take all the notes. You will not find a single promise that has failed. You will not find a single time that God told people that something would happen and then it did not come to pass. Every single promise that God keeps comes true. They will never fail. And what that means is when He makes promises to us or when we read His promises, we can trust them because we know all of these chapters, really the entire book of Joshua can be summarized in these three verses. If I can only preach one, one sermon on this book, I would probably pick these three verses because it is the framework to understand the whole thing. God keeps His promises. Every single one of them. So let's look at what these promises are and let's see God's track record throughout these chapters. Point number two is that God promises His people a home, victory, and rest. God promises His people a home, victory, and rest. So first, we'll, we'll take these one at a time. So first, let's look and see how God, God's promise to Israel to give them a home. This is really what this whole book has been about, is them entering into, right, what do we call it, the promised land. The land that God promised them, that He told them. It's not just called the promised land. I kind of thought it was that, you know, growing up because it was just so awesome. Um, it is, but it's the promised land because God promised. He said, this will be your place. And so much of these chapters is about the land. Right, if you cycled through it, if you read, you probably, your eyes may have rolled back in your head and got a little bored because it just starts listing cities, which are hard to pronounce. Okay, I, I know Hebrew kind of, and they're still hard to pronounce in Hebrew, they don't get any easier. Right, and it's just 15, the allotment is just going through inheritance and listing all of these places. Why, why would it do that? Why, why? Is Joshua just, does he not know what good writing is? No, they are all listed down to the very details so that Joshua and we today, thousands of years later, can see that God keeps His promises down to the very dot, to the iota. Not one word of God's promises fail. It might be boring to read, but every single city, every single place is a guarantee and an example that God kept that promise. And God kept that promise. And God kept that one. And God kept ten chapters of promises. And not one word of His promises will fail even as the years pass by, right? Because where did this promise start? Genesis 15. It's the time when God spoke to Abraham and He made a covenant with Abraham. I'd encourage you, if you haven't read that chapter in a while, to take some time this week and, and dig into it. Um, Genesis 15 is one of the key chapters in the book of Genesis. It's one of the key chapters in understanding the whole Testament because it's the covenant and the promises that God made to Abraham where all of Israel is descended from. When 43 and 44, when it keeps saying, just as he sworn to their fathers, the first father that they're thinking of is Abraham. 
And in Genesis 15, God made a promise to Abraham. He said, Abraham, your descendants will have this very land. And he lists it. He lists the place. He lists the nations and the people who are there. And he says, I promise that will be their place. And it tells them it's going to take a while to get there. They're going to go into slavery. It's going to be at least 400 years. But I promise your descendants will have this land. And God keeps His promises. We see this in the short story of Caleb in chapter 14, kind of 6 through 15. Um, it mentions Caleb. And Caleb was a spy along with Joshua. He's one of the only people who actually believed that God was going to keep His promises, who believed that God would give them this land. And so he comes to Joshua to remind him, hey, 45 years ago, Moses and God made me a promise of some specific land that I could have. And then it details how God comes through on that promise. Caleb had to wait 45 years, but God's promises came true. Caleb finally gets a home after a lifetime of slavery and a 40 years of wandering in the desert. God came through on His promises because not one word will fail. God promises Israel a home, but He also promises us a home. He promises everyone in this room a home, but not a, a home that will fade, but an eternal home. Not a home like Israel that's dependent on their obedience, because if, they're, if they stay obedient and they stay submitting to God, He'll let them stay in the land. If not, He's going to send them out on their way. The home that God prepares for us is not based on how good or how obedient we are, but on the obedience of Christ. And when Jesus comes back, He will remake the heavens and the earth. And we will get to live in an eternal home with Him forever. And that is a promise. That's not a promise I'm making. That's a promise God's making. And if you can trust Him to keep the promise to Israel 400 plus years later, you can trust that promise will be made true for us as well. You know, we just bought a home recently. Um, and it, we've kind of moved a lot and lived in some different places the past several years. Um, and one thing that, that has made me feel is there's nothing like being able to come home and relax in your own home. Okay, I spent a couple months living with our in-laws. They're great. I love them. Um, but living with your in-laws is not the same as living in your own home. And even in moving into a new home, it takes a while because it's new, it's different. It takes a while until we settle in and now, ah, finally, the past couple weeks or past month, we kind of talked about it and we're like, yeah, this, this feels like home now. There's nothing, there's nothing compared to the feeling of just coming home after a hard day, sitting down in your favorite spot in your house and getting to just breathe out and just, ah, home. God promises that we're going to have an even better home than whatever home you have now. And it's not going to be better just because it's going to be remodeled just the way that you want or because you're not going to have to worry about the hail in your roof or how your yard looks and the tree limbs. It's going to be an even better home because we get to live there with Jesus and with His people, an eternal home, one that God has prepared for us. Not one word of God's promises will fail. And He promises us a home. He also promised not just them a home, but He promised them victory over their enemies. He promised that they would be able to defeat all the people in this land, people that they're scared of, even though they have massive cities, even though they have chariots, even though they have bigger armies, God will prevail, that God would fight for them as long as they were obedient, right? There's only one time they lose, and it's the only time they don't, they're not obedient and they don't trust God, but as long as they do, we see how God fights for them. We saw how God split the Jordan River just like He split the Red Sea. 
We see how God destroyed the walls of Jericho. We see how God routed the city of Ai. We saw how God throws down hail from the heavens and makes the sun and the moon stand still. God gives victory. At the end of chapter 10 um, is great. It just goes on kind of in 29, and it just lists all the times that God brings victory. All right, well, actually, 28, it does it. And he did this to the king of Megiddo, just as he did to this king. 31, and he did it to this king, just as he did to the king of Jericho. And 32, and he did this to this city. And it just lists city after city after city that God gave them victory over. It's quick for us to read this, but this didn't happen super fast. Okay, it wasn't 20 minutes of victory. It took weeks, took months, took all this time fighting, but God gave them victory. Every single city that stood against Israel failed. Chapter 11 goes on and it lists, okay, now here's all the kings. That was in the south. Here's all the kings in the north that they tried to fight. And guess what? God gave victory again. And you look at chapter 11 is great. Verse 4, so all the nations come together. Again, they didn't learn from chapter 10. The last time that a bunch of nations got together to fight God's people, they say, no, we can build a better one. We'll actually get them this time. Let's do that. So they all come together. And look how many people they bring together to fight in verse 4 of chapter 11. And they came out with all of their troops, a great horde. Okay, horde is a great word. I love the word horde. That, that, that really kind of gets in your mind. That, that sounds horrible. I don't want to fight that. Well, it gets worse. In a number like the sand that is on the seashore. The only other time you hear that description is describing Abraham's descendants. Okay, but now it's describing all the people fighting Abraham's descendants. It's so big, God isn't even giving them a number. I know God knows the number, but it's, it's showing us how massive this is. You can't even count how many people have come to fight them with very many horses and chariots. Okay, the, the very many horses and chariots, that really sounds like an understatement to me, right? After horde and innumerable. But they're not giving numbers. This is an insane amount of people. And we can't overstate the advantage that chariots and horses are at the ancient world. Okay, because to, to us, it's just like horses, chariots. Yeah, of course, you, you have an army back then, you probably need some horses and chariots. Okay, Israel never had horses, and Israel never had chariots. Okay, horses and chariots in the ancient world, it's like these are their tanks and their helicopters. These are their battleships and their aircraft carriers and their fighter jets. And Israel has, you know, their M-16s and do their best, right? It's kind of in our terms. They, they've got nothing. They have nothing to fight this. And that's why so often through Scripture, as you see, when God says, don't trust in horses, don't trust in chariots, don't worry about those. Why is that mentioned all the time? Because those are massive military advantages that Israel never gets. But what does God say in the face of not just the greatest army they've ever seen, bigger than they could ever count, has more military advantages than they could ever see? What does God say in 11.6? Don't be afraid of them. I'll give them all of them over to you, slain. All of them. All those people you can't count, you're in victory over every single one. You're not just getting some victory, not just getting a little victory. I'm giving you complete victory. God is doing it. In the end, and you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now, hamstringing the horses, it's kind of this idea of cutting the tendons on the back of a horse's knee so that they're useless. Which seems a little extreme, but why is God doing that? Because God is saying, you don't need that. All those horses, all those chariots, we're just going to burn them all with fire because you don't need any of these things. You just need me because I am bringing victory. 
Not one, all those fancy military advantages are going to be turned to ash because nothing can stand against God's people. Not the mightiest force they could have ever imagined. Why? Because God promised victory and not one word of God's word will fail. Chapter 12, I love chapter 12 because he just goes, he just lists kings. Well, here's all the kings Moses beat. Here's all the kings Joshua beat. And it's just king after king, this king and that king and the king over there and the king over there. I'm not going to try and read them all. And at the end of 24, it just says, all in all, 31 kings. Just count them up. As fast as those kings can come and stand against Israel, God knocks them right down. There is not a battle that Israel loses here because God is faithful. God brings victory to His people. But God will also bring us victory. And by victory, what I mean, I mean ultimate victory. I don't just mean victory in our life, like we're going to get all the promotions we want and that our bank accounts will be overflowing and that our life will always be easy. I'm not talking about that kind of cheap victory. I'm talking about the victory at the end of days. The victory when all the nations again will think they can form another super team and fight after God and His people. And they'll bring all the military advantages they can think of, and they'll gather at the end of time in the final apocalyptic battle. And you know how God promises it'll end? He wins. God wins. He promises victory. You know, when it comes to the book of Revelation, there's a lot of it I barely understand. Okay, it's hard. There's too many people with too many charts, and all their charts and things and pointing around, and how does this all come together? You know what? There's a lot of it I don't know, but here's the main point of the book of Revelation that I do know and what I rest in is that God wins. God wins. If you get nothing else when you read the book of Revelation, you've missed the point. It is the fact that God will bring victory. Final victory. Okay, the world can go up and down. Things can, the church can get better, the church can get worse, nations will rise, nations will fall, tons of them have happened, thousands more will rise and fall as the Lord tarries. But you know what matters is at the end of time, God will win. God will win. He will bring victory. Not one word will fail. Look at the next promise where God promises that He will bring His people rest. Deuteronomy 12, uh, 9 through 10, it actually describes part of what this rest means. It, it, it describes the promise that God is giving to the nation of Israel. And part of what it means is a huge part of rest, right, is rest from war. It's rest from the enemies. It's, it's rest from people coming to fight against them and to raise their arms and to struggle against them. It means not having to worry about anybody coming into their home and taking it from them. God gives them that rest. God gives them that rest because we see now that in 2144, God gave them rest on every side, just as He had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. God knocked down every single enemy, and now they have rest. Now they can relax, they can put their feet up. And as long as they're obedient and faithful, God promises in the, law, the book of Moses, that he will give them rest, that they will have peace, that they don't have to worry when any nation comes against them, as long as they trust him. Now, there's, some, and there's still some enemies in the land. We'll, we'll see a little later because Joshua and the people don't completely submit in obedience. But the promise tells us they don't have to worry about them. They don't have to fear that they're going to rise up and fight them as long as they continue to be obedient. God gives them rest. <laughs> But the idea of rest in the Bible is actually so much more than just peace from war. 
doesn't just mean taking a really nice nap. Um, rest and peace in the Bible is actually tied up especially with justice and righteousness. And the idea of rest is actually entering into shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for rest, and it's when the world is made right. It's kind of, it's wholeness. It's when all things are as they should be. I love um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s quote about rest and peace, that true peace is not merely the absence of tension, it's the presence of justice. And that's what we see. So chapter 20 pops up, and you may wonder, what is going on with chapter 20 here? Because chapter 20, it describes sanctuary cities. It describes these cities of justice, and God starts giving some instructions here. These are instructions God's given before in other places, um, but He repeats it. And so let's look at why is this and why would God do this? Chapter 20, verse 3. So these cities are set up that the manslayer, or a murderer, who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. And there they shall be a refuge from the avenger of blood. Okay, so there's a, there's a lot here. So if somebody accidentally kills someone, right? So we have distinctions. That's why we have all the different degrees of murder and manslaughter. Right? There's killing somebody because you're premeditated. There's killing somebody as just an accident. Right? So that's kind of what Scripture is doing here as well. It's saying if you unintentionally kill someone, then this is a place, if it's an accident, if you didn't mean it, if it just happened, you can go here to seek justice. Okay, Because this is the ancient world. So what happens in the ancient world if you kill my brother? I'm going to kill you. And you better run quick because I'm going to come get you right away. Right? But that, that's what happens. So what's happening, right? Eye for an eye. Life for a life. So instead, what God does is He sets up these cities. And as you look, as it describes where they are, they're actually spread all throughout the land. Because the idea is that anyone should be able to run to these cities to seek justice. Now, this does not mean that anyone can just get away with murder as long as they run fast enough. Okay, that would be, that's a misunderstanding of what this passage is doing. And look, in, in 4, it kind of explains this some. It says, and he shall flee to one of these cities, and he can stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. And then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. So they get, he's got to plead his case, got to explain it to the elders. And the, the elders, we're assuming these are people who are trustworthy, people who are righteous, People who understand justice, people who will give a fair, give a fair trial. So he's got to plead his case there, and if they accept it and they take him in this city, we look at back at verse six in chapter twenty. It says, "And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment." So really, it's not that you get to be free forever. It's just you need to go to this city and then wait until the trial comes. And so why is this happening? So the purpose of these cities is not to go easy on murderers, but the purpose of these cities is to enshrine and ensure justice. So that people can't just be killed with lynch mobs. People just can't be killed because everyone gets angry and we decide to hang this person up a tree or end them because they killed somebody important. It doesn't matter it was an accident. They were, I really cared about them and I don't like you that much anyway. None of that kind of stuff is supposed to happen here. And look at verse 9 what these cities are. Why are these cities here as well? These cities are designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger surgeoning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. So this is not just for citizens of Israel. This is for anyone in the land. This is for the alien. This is for the stranger. 
It's not just so that... Because other nations have laws around this time about these kinds of things. Right? Other nations have varying degrees of laws. And the main things that these other nations go, if you read the Hammurabi Code, you read Babylon, you read Egypt, you read these different nations, what did they do with their laws? Well, there's different sets of laws. If you're a citizen, you get this law. Okay, if you're not a citizen, you get not, not quite so good of a law. You don't really get justice. If you're rich, if you're free, if you've got lots of money, then you get, you, know, you get a really good set of laws. You pretty much do whatever you want in a lot of places. You're poor, eh, not so much. Good luck. That is not so in God's land in the place where God brings peace. So why is the discussion of justice here with rest? It's because God wants this nation to be different than all the other nations. That the nation of Israel is not just a place where Israel can kick up their feet and enjoy it and then go about their business, but this is a place where God's justice and righteousness and the peace of God reigns. It is a place where anyone can find justice. The rich and powerful don't get, a get, don't get to get away with crime just because they have it that everyone can find justice. This is meant to be a nation that is defined by the righteousness of God. And this is why this section is here and it's sandwiched between kind of all of this stuff is not just that Joshua is adding an addendum, it's for a purpose. It's to remind us not just that God keeps His promises, but that the land that He is going to give them is actually going to be an awesome land. And it's not just going to be a great land because there's really good crops and there's really good soil and they can grow some great gardens, but it is a land where God's justice reigns and it is a land where King Jesus reigns. And that's why this section is here is to show how awesome this land is. Hebrews 4 is, a, is another chapter for, for us to look at. I encourage you to read that one as well because Hebrews 4 explains how God also promises us rest. And how God, the ultimate rest that God promises to us as believers, and how true rest is going to come when Jesus returns and when Jesus reigns. And it, and it references these sections in the, the book of Joshua and how God promised to give them rest and says, okay, so they, they got kind of rest, but the rest they got was just a taste of the rest that I have for you. It is just a, a foretaste of the rest that God has for us as believers. And so I encourage you to, to read that um, later on your own. But what you, what you see in all of these places is how God keeps His promises. How God promised His people. He promised them a home, a place to live. And it lists out. That's why, again, it just lists out all these things. We, we can read certain sections of the Bible and wonder, and this seems boring. Why is this here? They're all here for a reason. Okay, some parts of Scripture are more fun to read than others. Okay, we can just admit that. This is a safe place. We can say that together. Or I'll just say it and kind of nod your head a little bit. I won't rat you out. Okay, but God gives them for a reason. And the reason here is just to remind us that our God keeps every single one of His promises. Not one word fails. God gives His people victory, and He will give them rest. So let's look at our final point. So our application of what do we do with this? What is our response to these promises? Well, so your application is that I think that we should look forward to looking back. We should look forward to looking back. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, we find it at the end of chapter 21 is we find Israel standing at the end of the conquest. Okay, they're done. We're almost done here. Joshua is about to retire and die at the end of this book. 
So, so they're done. They're at the end, and they are reflecting. They're getting nostalgic. They're looking back on all that God has done and how God has kept every single promise He made to them. So what I think we should do is I think that we should look forward to the day when we get to do that. I think that we should look forward to the day when, when Jesus returns or when we go to meet with Him, that we will stand and we will get to look back over our entire lives. Not just our entire lives, we'll get to look back over all of history and see how God keeps and has kept every single promise. What a joyous moment this must be for Joshua to kick his feet up after years of warfare and see, man, God kept every promise he made to us. God kept every promise he made to me. We can see Joshua himself, it describes the land that Joshua received as his own inheritance. God keeps his promise to him. There will be a day, brothers and sisters, when we will get to look back. We will get to look back over our lives and see how not one word of all the good promises that God made to us has failed. That not one word didn't come true, that everything that God promises will come to pass. That He will return one day. He will give us a place. He will give us a home that we can live in. He will defeat all of his enemies till there is no one left, the followers of Jesus. And he will give us eternal rest to live not just in a place of justice, but in a place that is filled with the presence of Jesus and with the presence of God. One day we will get to see. Paul, the Apostle Paul says that now we see, you know, kind of, kind of, darkly. It's hard to see through. We can't get a whole picture. But one day when Christ comes, we will see clearly. It will all make sense. Abraham didn't get to see these promises come true. He had to wait a long time. Even in heaven, even hanging out with the Lord, with our Lord and Savior, he still had to wait. But he saw them come true. And Hebrews 11 tells us how, Hebrew, how Abraham was waiting and longing for a city. He was looking forward to the time when God's promises would come true because he knew that they would. So what I think we should do is we should look forward to that day. Think about that day. In the midst of today, in the midst of anxiety or unsure or just an average day, what we need is we need to remember that not one word of our God's promises will fail that He keeps every single one, and that is something to look forward to. That is something to look forward to, how God will keep every single promise. Every single one. So a, a tangible way you can do this is to think about, um, as you're leaving in your car and you're backing up, and next time you look in the mirror and you look at what's behind you, you can just pause for it. Use that as a, as a way to reflect, you know what? I'm looking forward to the day that I'm just looking behind my car to see what's going on, that I can look back over our entire life, my entire life, and see how God kept every single promise. Let's read 45 again because it's just so worth it. Not one word of all the good promises that God has made to the house of Israel had failed. They all came to pass. We can trust all of His promises to Israel. We can trust all of His promises to us. 
look forward, brothers and sisters, to the day that we get to look back and see all that Jesus has done and will do for us. Let's bow our heads and, and pray. I'll invite the worship team to, to come up and to lead us um, just in a, a bit of that song and reminding us that our God is able. He's able to do great things, and He will do great things, and He will keep every promise that He has made. Let's pray. Um, Lord, I thank You that You are a God who keeps Your promises. Lord, I thank You that not a single word or syllable that comes out of Your mouth will ever fail. Lord, help us to trust You. Lord, help us to cling to Your promises. Help us to hold on to Your Word to hold on to the promises that you have made to give us a home, the promise that you will have victory over all your enemies and the promise that one day you will give us rest. Lord, I cannot wait till I get to see how every single promise you have made has come true. Help us to look forward to looking back at that day. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen.